That's good. Um, Spencer's right. We have a lot to praise God for here. And things at our church are going great. Praise God for that. And um, I really am excited about what the future might hold for us as a church, how that might all work out. Um, If you're visiting with us, I want to just tell you, first of all, that this is a family, and we want to welcome you to it. I'm having mic problems again. Sounds like sounds like I'm cutting in and out again. Um, in any case, uh, we want to welcome you to the family if you're visiting with us. And I'm excited that you've decided to give us a try because I can promise you that if you're visiting with us and you're here long enough that you will really find a family of people who will love you and who will care about you and who will um, want the very best to happen in your life and to be part of helping that happen. And I think a big part of finding God's best for your life comes from truly understanding and applying the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And so... By way of introducing our topic this week, let me ask you a question. Have you ever sinned in a way that was really, really bad? Don't raise your hand. We're not going to take a survey here, all right? (laughs) Okay. But I'm not talking about... You know, something we might consider relatively minor, you know, like going 56 and a 55, you know, or doing 48 down there in the Narrows where it's only supposed to be uh, 45 or or maybe 65 or whatever. Uh, You know, relatively minor. Uh, You know, I'm not talking about having a bad attitude at the DMV. I think even God understands that. Okay. I'm, I'm talking about more serious ones, ones that we might consider among the biggies. And again, don't raise your hand. Ever stolen anything? Gotten away with it? Ever committed adultery? Ever lied to get yourself out of a jam? Ever viewed pornography? ever physically harmed someone? Ever slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend or even just some random person that you met somewhere? Ever woke up feeling terrible and far away from God and wondering if you, not only if you could get back, but if you wanted to get back into your relationship with God. Ever had any of that happen? Again, don't raise your hand, because I think a lot of us, if we're really honest, would confess to having done maybe more than one thing, maybe a long list of things, of which we're not especially proud, and to which we would not readily admit in front of anybody whose opinion we respected. And among us, there might also be a whole lot of us who might confess to feeling guilty 
but not at least for a while feeling guilty enough to stop doing whatever it was we were up to that we knew better than to be doing. And at times like that, it's pretty easy to think that our relationship with God is either permanently on hold or at a minimum damaged beyond repair, and it's pretty easy at those times to hold God at a distance because we're pretty sure that that's what God is going to do to us, that he's going to hold us at a distance. And while we might believe that we are saved by grace, but we are pretty sure our relationship with God nevertheless operates by law, and so God is going to maybe acknowledge us as his child at Judgment Day, but in the interim we shouldn't expect too much. And we think that, at least partially, I think, because our, a lot of our relationships with people that we encounter day to day are really performance-based. You do this for me, and I'll do that for you. And it's kind of a mutual back-scratching arrangement. If you perform in this way, if you don't hurt my feelings too badly, if you... Uh, do what I expect of you, well, then I will love you and care about you and provide for you and so forth. Even marriages sometimes become that way. Kind of more of a tit-for-tat kind of a thing, back and forth, mutual exchange to meet mutually agreed-upon needs than they are about love and sacrifice. And so over time, we come to believe a lot of times that God's love for us at the bottom is really conditional too. And because of that, because that is our tendency to have a desire to perform, because we think that since all of our other relationships a lot of times are conditional and based on our performance and we're loved and accepted and valued as long as we perform, as long as we meet certain standards, as long as we're not too objectionable, I want to show you what the Bible has to say about justification and what uh, it's a word that's tightly related to this concept of gift righteousness that we looked at last week, but it has more to do with our legal status before God and the debt that we have incurred because of our sin. Sin is sometimes pictured as an offense or as rebellion, but it's also pictured in the Bible as a debt. How many of you, now you can raise your hand on this, have debt? Owe somebody something, right? Maybe you owe money on your house, like me. Um, or you owe money on a car or on, on a credit card or on a school loan or whatever. You know, you can have debt. And that debt can hang on you like a weight, in fact, there's, there's a reason that we burn the mortgage when we finish paying it off, right? Because we feel like, ha, finally, I have been released from that debt because, as the Bible says, the borrower is slave to the lender. And you can feel like all my labor is going out the door to pay bills. And it's, you feel like a slave. Well, when you sin, you incur a debt also. 
and you incur a debt against God. And your debt is so significant that it required the death of the Son of God to pay. And so we're going to look at your justification before God uh, through the cross at Calvary. So if you got your Bible, go to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 uh, and 20. We're going to look at those first, and then we're going to study on some more here a little bit later. But this is what Paul says, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now let me back up here just a minute. And For those of you who aren't familiar with the book of Romans, uh, what the book of Romans is, is, is it's written as kind of an extended support letter to the church at Rome by the Apostle Paul. He's planning to, to stop off at Rome on his way to Spain because part of Paul's goal in his church planting efforts around the Mediterranean Sea was to go where no church had yet been planted. But he had never been to Rome, and the church there had not been founded by him. And so he is carefully trying to explain what it is he teaches and preaches as he goes and plants churches. Because there are a lot of people out there at, in Paul's day, as there are in ours, who are claiming to speak for God and who claim to teach according to what Jesus taught and according to what the Old Testament revealed. But Paul is trying to make sure that they know exactly what they're getting when they endorse and support and encourage him in his ministry. And so he spent the first couple of chapters up to this point talking about God's wrath against sin. He's talked about how God's wrath is against Gentiles because of the fact that they sin, even though God has made himself known to them through their creation and through their moral sense and through their conscience. And that God's wrath is also against Jewish people because even though they have the law, they don't obey it and they don't keep it. And God holds them yet to a higher standard. Because biblically, you are judged by God, not based on what you did not know, but based on what you did know. And based on what they did know about God, they rebelled against him, and so God's wrath is against them also. And that brings us up to about verse 19 here. Uh, Paul says this, look, uh, all of us as believers, Jews and Gentiles, all people, are accountable before God. That's the basic synopsis of where we are up to now in Romans. And, and in verse 319, Paul's making three important points. Number one, the law's pronouncements are binding on those under it. That is, God gave the law to Jews. And therefore, they're under it, or they're bound by its requirements. That seems obvious, Right? Why he, in fact, he even includes himself as a Jew uh, in that. He says, now we, meaning including me, know that what the law says, it says to those who are under it. It says to Jews. And they're bound by its requirements. And number two, it was given so that no one could argue that he or she was not a sinner. 
no one can argue that they're not a sinner. That's what Paul means when he says that so that every mouth might be stopped. In other words, so that no one can say, well, I'm not a sinner. Never violated the law. Oh, really? Well, let's look at the law. If you're bound to obey it, you've broken it. So therefore, you're a sinner. And the law made God's standards really, really plain and obvious so that people who had the law knew that they weren't keeping it and knew that they were guilty of sin and deserved to be held accountable to God's judgment. And finally, verse 20 says this. This is what the law's purpose was. It was to reveal God as holy and his standards as higher than anybody could ever obey. It was to point out, in other words, not that this was a way of salvation, but the need for salvation and forgiveness. Not for better standards, but for a better person who could obey them. Because the law was not given so that we could keep it and thereby attain salvation. The the law was to point out that God was so holy that we couldn't keep it and that it could never save us from sin and death because we weren't good enough people. We needed a heart transplant, a heart transformation. We needed to be different people to obey God's holy law. And since we weren't, All the law did was condemn us because there was no way we could live up to it. That was the law's purpose, to say, God is holy and you are not, and you need a better way of obeying the law. You need to to have a better way of becoming acceptable to God than this because based on this, everyone who stands before God will be condemned. And even if you're a Gentile, he's already been arguing, even if you're a Gentile who didn't know the law, who had never sacrificed to Yahweh, who didn't have any understanding of the Scriptures at all, God had put His divine nature and His power, revealed it in the heavens. He had revealed morality in your own heart and in your own soul. Even when, uh, even when you didn't keep it yourself, You yourself, when it was violated against you, were aware of what God's law was. In other words, you can argue, and people do, that, well, God doesn't have a universal morality that he's given to everybody. People make that argument. And there is no God and there is no universal morality. And you can make that argument. You can act like that, if you will, but you can't react like that. Because a guy who says that to you, if you hit his car and refuse to pay the bill, he's going to act like a 17th century Puritan. And he's going to say, no, that is wrong. That is evil. You are wicked. You deserve condemnation. Where is he going to get that from? Where does that moral sense that he has when God's moral law is violated against us, where does that come from? That comes from God, according to Paul. And Paul says that everybody, either those under the law or those without the law, stand condemned before God based on what they know. Everybody is condemned 
no human being is justified in his sight. Because all of us, based on what we know, condemned. All of us. That's the bad news. But the good news is coming, so hang on. All right? Verse 21 to 26. Let's read it together. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's a question. This is part of the question Paul is answering in this text. If keeping the law and performing to God's standards can't be done and thus can't save you, how is salvation possible? Or maybe you, maybe I can put it a little more vividly for you. You know, the problem that a lot of people have with God is this one. They say, how can a loving God send good people to hell? That's the question that people ask. God's problem is a different problem. How can a holy God uh, do anything other than send wicked people to hell? How can a holy God keep from sending wicked people to hell? We say, well, we're good people. God says, no, you're not. All of you, every one of you is condemned because you have failed to be holy. You have violated my standards repeatedly. How can a holy God keep from sending people to hell? God is holy. He must judge. God's problem with us is that we are wicked and he is holy and we cannot be in his presence. Paul says the answer is found in a God who gives a new kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that isn't dependent on keeping the law, but which was predicted by both the law and the prophets. Look at the text. He says, now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the law and the prophets, that is, that's, that's, a, that's a very Jewish way of talking about the whole Old Testament. The law is the first five books. The prophets is everything else. He says all of the Old Testament, in other words, testifies to this new kind of righteousness that God is going to make possible. But it's a righteousness that comes apart from obeying the law. That's verse 21. Because, and how does it come? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's verse 22. And he says there's no distinction. In other words, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. All of us are guilty before God, every single one of us, based on what we know from what God has revealed himself, of himself, either through general revelation, things like conscience 
and the creation, as you look out at the stars and you see the vastness of the universe, you realize that the God who made that must be powerful. That you look at your body and you see that, that, that it has tremendous intricacy. There are muscles in your eyelids, for crying out loud, that allow you, through the movement of tiny muscles in your face, to have all kinds of expressions and to convey emotions without words. The God who made those things must be profoundly intelligent. You see that you have a moral sense and you realize that God must be ethical also because that doesn't arise naturally from nature. And you see these things and you realize that you don't measure up to your own moral standards, never mind those of God. And so you realize that you are condemned before God. That's a basic Gentile way of thinking. A Jew looks at the law and says, man, there is no way I can keep all of this, especially if I'm going to keep the spirit of the law and not simply the letter. And you realize that you are condemned. And Paul says there is no distinction. Everybody equally is condemned before God unless the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus is manifest in them. And he says this, there's no difference because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Literally, what that means is this. It says that we, when it says we fall short, the idea is not that we fell short once. It's present tense in Greek, which means the idea of continuous, repeated action in the present time. This is something we keep on doing. This is an ongoing issue. It's actually an archery term that has to do with not just shooting the wrong, not just shooting the, the wrong part of the target, but actually actively pursuing and hitting the wrong one. When it, it's the idea of missing the target, that you missed the mark. So you, in other words, you didn't just not shoot at the deer, you shot actively at the tree. <laughs> okay. Um, it's the wrong target, and you picked it out on purpose. And Paul says this, that we fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified by His grace as a gift. What's it mean to be justified? By the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf, By God's grace, through faith in Jesus' death, God declares us holy. In other words, we're not just acquitted. You know, if you're you're familiar with legal terms and so forth, somebody stands guilty before the bar of justice, and sometimes they get off. Maybe it's a technicality. Maybe they had a good lawyer. Maybe the jury didn't really want to send this guy to prison, whatever the deal is. But the guy got acquitted. And he goes free, even though he's guilty. That's not the biblical idea of being justified, that you got acquitted, that you got that the bar of justice was not really satisfied, but you got off anyway. No, this is that by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not just acquitted of your evil. You are declared holy 
higher In other words, not just, oh, well, he's innocent. No, no, no. You're declared actively holy in possession of the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. How does that happen? How can that happen? How can that be? How can that still be just? Paul says it this way. He says it's not based on our works because based on our works, we all get condemned. It's based on the finished work, the completed death of Jesus Christ. And what happens is this, is that the Messiah, by his death, bought redemption and the satisfaction of God's wrath against us with his death. It means that when God looks at you and me, even in the midst of the most heinous thing we've ever done, now now go back to that thing, whatever it was, think back, and that most ugly sin that you can remember, and imagine God looking down at you and seeing you in the middle of it. And at that very moment, through faith in Jesus Christ, He sees you not in your sin, but through glasses covered by the blood of Jesus. He sees you holy. Grace. Through your faith, God looks at you and sees not your sin, but his son. And you are declared holy and righteous not by your effort, but by God's grace. And just in case anybody would wonder, how, well, how did God deal with people prior to Christ? Because obviously the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews says, can never take away sin. So how did these people get justified? How are they able to stand before God? Well, Paul says, look at the text here. Verse 25 It says that God put Jesus forward as the propitiation by his blood. Now, hang on to that word because we're going to look at it next week. Basically, propitiation is about the fact that God hates you because you're a sinner. But he sends Jesus to satisfy his wrath against you. Hang on to that. You've probably never heard anybody preach a sermon where they said that God hates you. But next week, you need to come because that's what it's about. (laughs) Okay. Jesus was put forward as the propitiation, the wrath satisfier, the one who ended God's hatred to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. In other words, all the former sins that were done prior to Jesus piled up, almost as if there is a divine warehouse somewhere where all the sins got stored. And then when Jesus Christ came... Because God is just and he has to have a judgment for sin. What happened is, is that as Jesus hung on the cross, all those sins that have been stored up in the past, God opens the warehouse door, grabs the forklift and starts dumping them off on Jesus. So that they are paid. 
And not only the sins committed beforehand, but the sins that you are going to commit in the future. All of the sins that you ever have done, all the sins you ever will do, all the sins that were done in the past, all of them God judged on Jesus. And in his death on the cross, God reveals his righteousness. Because again, God's problem is this. How can God be just and at the same time keep you out of hell? Because a just God, because he is holy, would send you to hell for your sin. It's rebellion. It's treason against God. And God has declared that the death penalty is the only one that works for appropriately judging sin against him. So how can God be just and at the same time be loving and keep you out of hell? With Jesus. He takes all your sin and he lays it on Jesus. And he judges it there. And God then demonstrates his righteousness, his holiness, and justice. Because justice requirements are paid with the blood of of Jesus Christ. He sends the Son to die in our place, and the Son takes the penalty that we deserve, and therefore God's justice is satisfied, and His love is demonstrated all at the same time in Jesus' death. And by faith in Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, we experience the love of a holy God who redeems us through the death of his son, by the power of the spirit, who regenerates and saves us. And thus God can pronounce the judgment on sin, carry out that judgment on the son, and receive us into the family by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means that God is both the just, he is the judge, and he's the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And there's more. I want you to read on with me. A couple more verses here. Verses 27 to 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Basically, what Paul is saying is this. There's no room for boasting or for any kind of self-righteous pride because there's nothing that we did that adds anything or contributed in any way to our justification. In fact, if you want to summarize it this way, our contribution to salvation is this. We did all the sinning. God did all the saving. And therefore, we have no basis for saying before God, aren't I great? No. What you are is lost. And then Jesus came and made it possible for your sin to be judged, but not on you. On Jesus. 
And God declares you holy, not on the basis of what you've done, but in spite of what you've done. And in spite of who you are, and in spite of all the wicked things that you have have done and said and thought, in spite of all that, when God looks at you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, he sees not your sin, but his son. And he declares you holy before him. And God is not only the God of the Jews, but he's also the God of the Gentiles. And he saves us all on the same basis by faith. And by, the, and by that same faith, we do the things that the law requires. That's verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law? No, we don't overthrow the law. We keep it, but we keep it not in order to be saved but as a response to the fact that God loves us and has saved us, we do the kinds of things the law requires. And so it's not that, well, now that I'm saved, now I can, um, you know, lie, steal, cheat, murder, and adulterize my way, you know, through life. No. You do keep the law. You do obey what God says. You do worship and serve him only. You do avoid coveting and murdering and hating and stealing and adultery and lust and all of the associated things with that. But you do them for a different reason and by a different power. You do them because you have seen God's holy love revealed to you in Christ. And you have received the redemption that comes through him. And by his grace, through your faith, you've trusted in him and come into relationship with him. And now you do what the law requires, but as a response to that wonderful holy love being demonstrated. And the fact that God sees you as holy and as his. A couple questions here as we close, wrap this up. Uh, first question, and this is the, the biggest and most important one that you ever have to answer if if you if you go through life and you never answer this question in the affirmative you have messed up you have missed the point of human life and the question is this have you been justified by faith in Jesus Christ have you been justified by faith in Jesus Christ Many, many people come to church for many, many years. Sometimes they even join a church. Start serving, maybe join a board. And they have never personally received, by faith in Jesus Christ, justification from God. They have never been declared righteous in the sight of God because their beliefs go something like this. Yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. Yes, I believe he was raised from the dead. But they've never made the jump from that belief and acceptance of a historical fact to believing it personally for them and saying, I am placing my entire trust for my entire life and my entire hope of eternal destiny in heaven with God. I am placing my personal trust 
in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross, not simply as a historical fact, but for me to take away my sin, to grant me justification and right standing before God so that I am seen as holy in the sight of God the Father. That I receive that justification that none of my sins are counted against me because they are all paid by Jesus Christ at the cross. If you have never done that, I don't care who you are, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how young you are, today, as the prophet said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not say to yourself, oh, I've got plenty of time, I'll do that later. Do not say, well, I don't really know if I've done that, I think I've done that, maybe I've done that, I don't know, I've committed church a lot. Make it really, really simple and say, I don't know if I've done this or not before or not, but I'm going to make sure that I have. And today, I'm going to personally place my trust in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for my sins, that if I'd been the only person who had ever needed salvation, Jesus would have come for me. And he came for you and for me and died on a cross to pay the death penalty for your sin that you owed. To take the separation from God that you deserve. And to have that judgment poured out on him. And to take it away so that when God sees you, he sees you innocent and holy as Jesus, his son. If you've never believed that Jesus died on the cross for you and was raised from the dead to give you new life, I invite you to trust in Jesus Christ right now. And you might do that just very simply in your heart, without, even with your eyes open, saying, Jesus Christ, I know you died on the cross for my sins. And I'm trusting in you right now to take away my sins. And I believe that you were raised from the dead, as the Scripture says. And I believe that you did that not only to demonstrate that you are God, but to give me new life by the same power that raised you from the dead. And if you do that right now in your heart, you have received justification, redemption, propitiation, all these great things that we are talking about and will talk about. You receive them at the moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, do that today. Do it right now. Don't wait another minute. Second question, last question. Do you really believe what the Bible teaches about your justification? Do you really believe what the Bible says about you and about your justification. Many of us who are believers allow our sins to weigh us down and to stand in the way of our relationship with God. And we think this way. We think, well, I've sinned in some big ways today, and so my relationship with God is bad. Well, I haven't done any big sins that I consider to be a big deal lately, so my relationship with God is good. How are you doing Oh, I'm fine, brother. How are you? 
And what we mean is, well, I haven't screwed up huge this week, this month, this year, so far, but it's early. It's only February. <laughs> okay. And so we judge our our spiritual life not based on what Jesus Christ has done for us, but how we have behaved lately. And we allow our sin to kind of be the measuring stick or our awareness of sin anyway to be the measuring stick for our relationship with God. And we allow it to stand in the way of our relationship with God because if I've screwed up huge, you know, yesterday or this morning, maybe on the way to church, we had a knockdown, drag out fight in the car. No one ever has that happen, I know. Unless your last name is Horn. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have them. No one else has that. Okay. Um, we didn't have one today. <laughs> but it's no, been known to happen. Probably will happen again, right? And we judge, our, we judge and evaluate our relationship with God based on how things have gone today. But here's the thing. This is what the Bible says. This is what this passage is about. Our sins are already paid for. They have already been dealt with. And that doesn't give you a license to sin, but a reason to praise God. Our sin is already dealt with. We don't have to hang back in our relationship with God or creep into his presence kind of afraid of what he might say or what he might think or or when we visualize talking to God, imagine him scowling with his arms folded when we show up. Oh, it's you. About time you came dragging in here again. No. We worship the God who has already declared us righteous. Knowing all that we would do, knowing all that we have already done, all that we will do later. Again, that's not a license to sin, but it is a reason to praise God and a reason to be able to come boldly into his presence and receive grace and mercy and help when we need it. And it's to say, God, you've already declared me righteous in spite of everything. And to embrace that and to really believe it. Because I have a theory that if I really believe what the Bible says, that it's going to change my life. And it's going to change your life. And so my question to you today is this. Do you really believe what this passage says? Do you really believe it? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is the just and the justifier of the ungodly who believe in Jesus Christ. That though we have nothing that is to our credit, though we have nothing to offer you, though our obedience is questionable at best, though as the song says, we are prone to wander and we need you to bind our wandering heart to you. Father, though all of these things are true, you have by your incredible, amazing grace, through your holy love, 
poured out your wrath not on us but on Jesus and enabled us to be declared righteous and holy in your sight. Though we have done and thought and said things far worse than we are willing to admit to publicly, Jesus Christ laid down his life for those things. And when you see us, you do not see our sin. You see your son and his blood covering all of that and enabling us to stand holy before you. And Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your holy love, which paid for sin and loved us enough to keep us out of hell all at the same time. And these things are too big for us, Father, but we praise you for them. And we pray that we would embrace those truths, that we would, if we are not a believer today, we would not let another minute go by before we trust personally in Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And that if we have known you for many years or for a short time, that we would really believe what the Bible says about us, that you see us, not in our sin, but through through your Son as holy, and therefore draw near to you in full assurance of faith with every reason to praise you for your greatness. Father, we pray in Jesus' name.